Hey, everybody, we're talking to Don Oglesby today. What an amazing guy. He runs one of the coolest entrepreneurial nonprofits called Homes of Hope and has one of the most incredible startup stories you'll ever hear. He's a great friend of mine. Don't want to miss this great conversation. Welcome to The Last 10%. This podcast dives into incredible conversations that will inspire you to finish well and finish strong. Your host, Dallas Burnett, is the founder and CEO of Think Move Thrive, which exists to create cultures that others envy. His secret is learning from the best. Listen as Dallas's guests share their journeys and valuable advice on living in the last 10%. If you are a leader, a coach, a business owner, or someone looking to level up, you're in the right place. Remember, you can give 90% effort and make it a long way, but it's finding out how to unlock that last 10% that makes all the difference in your life, your relationships, and your work. Now, here's Dallas. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the last 10%. My name is Dallas Burnett, and I am sitting in my 1905 Koch Brothers barber chair in Thrive Studios on a beautiful sunny day, but more importantly, I'm with a very, very, very important, awesome, interesting, one of the most interesting men alive, Mr. Don Oglesby. Thank you for being with me today, Don. Well, I don't know who you're talking about, but I'm glad to be here. (laughs) Oh, man. So, Don, you are the CEO of Homes of Hope. And I've known and participated and been a part of just seeing your organization grow over the years. It has been just an awesome, awesome thing to witness. And I wanted to have you on the show. Just couldn't wait to have you on the show because of so many things. Number one, so that you can tell other people about this amazing organization. And number two, they can hear your story about how you got to where you are today. So why don't we just start there? Why don't we start and just tell everybody about, you know, what is Homes of Hope? What is all this? What's all this about? So Homes of Hope has been around for 24 years. We're South Carolina based. We cover the whole state in developing affordable housing. We really don't talk about affordable housing as much as we used to. We talk more about mixed income housing, where we're trying to make sure there's a diversity of incomes in the housing developments that we build so that there's a diversity of life experiences as well in each neighborhood we develop therefore leading to greater connections to resources for people who are low income to maybe do better and gain some economic mobility. So we're single family developers. We don't build apartment complexes. There's a place for that and other people can do that. But we are the largest single family developer of affordable housing in the state. And we usually develop in a whole community. So like for instance, right now in Charleston, we've got a 75 house project and just finished one in Columbia's 29 houses. We've got 45 house project in Spartanburg, a 40 house project in Greenville. That's kind of our niche is where we try to develop the whole neighborhood and then integrate it with various income ranges of people. People are sometimes curious about affordable housing. What does that mean? And when, when I say affordable housing and you say affordable housing, we usually have two different pictures in our brain. Most people that aren't familiar would say affordable housing looks like this or looks like that. And generally, it's a fairly negative picture in their brain when they think or hear that word. When you are approached by people or you're conversating with people, what when they think and you say, like, when you think of affordable housing, you mean this, what is those typical, you know, stigmas that people may bring to the table? 
bad quality housing, housing that's segregated by the location, put on the other side of the tracks, high rises that aren't maintained well, run down, not maintained. It shouldn't be that way. Affordable housing is is really, Dallas, it's just a math equation. If you take your annual income and divide it by 12, that's your monthly income. If you multiply that times 30% and you pay less than that for your housing, congratulations, you live in affordable housing. It doesn't matter what your income is. Everybody needs to be able to afford their house. So all we're talking about is being able to integrate families that are in the lower income spectrum to integrate into a market rate neighborhood and still afford their housing and still not be stigmatized by a crappy house, a ugly house, a house on the wrong side of the tracks. I love that you pointed out that hopefully we all already live in affordable housing because if we're financially minded, then we live in an affordable house, a house we can afford. And if not, we're stressed. So it's interesting. I love that perspective. And I think that definitely sets you apart because even when we think about affordable housing and other organizations that may have, you know, people get together and all help each other build a house, that is totally not what you're talking about because you're going in and building like entire communities. You're using housing to build not houses, but community. Exactly. If all we do is build sticks and bricks, then we failed in our mission. We have to be about building community. And what you said, your analogy that you used about a bunch of people getting together and building a house, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But most of those stories, if you see them on TV, whether it's a celebrity that does the show or just on the news, the story ends when you hand them the key, right? For us, the story starts when we hand them the key because we're all about connecting folks to resources for economic mobility. In other words, Dallas, now you can afford your house. What's next? And what's next often looks like a way to start investing your savings and building your portfolio of assets that you would want to have so that you don't have to be always needing homes of hope in your life. In other words, generational change is what we're after. Other than that, we're just, I mean, if we didn't do that, we're just playing musical chairs for the same people. We're about change, life change, and you can't start economic mobility if you're paying 60% of your income for housing. So if we get you to 30%, then now we can build on that through savings, going back to school, getting a better job, starting a small business, whatever that looks like for you and your success story. We have a team on our staff that connects with you to start that relationship. And then let's start connecting you to resources so that you don't need this one day. So not only does your organization build homes that people can afford in lower income brackets. And not only do they integrate those homes in communities that are market grade homes and that other people in all all different kinds of income live in that same community, but you're also partnering with these, with your tenants, the people that are living in these homes and actually, you're actually doing, you're like coaching them, like life skill coaching too, like getting their finances in order and that type of stuff. The only, uh, correction I guess I'll make to that is we don't do it all ourselves. So that would not be sustainable. So if we work in Columbia, we find nonprofits that do financial education, budgeting training, job training, getting them a GED, whatever their needs are, we partner with other people who are already doing those things that now have a captive audience, if you will, and somebody that lives in one of our homes. So we don't try to do it all for everybody. We try to build a relationship and then connect them to somebody that we trust that they can then trust. That is so cool. I love it. And so tell me how many houses you've got going on right now or say 
since your inception, how many houses, because I know you know this number, how many houses have you put our communities in, in communities across all over the place? To date, we just finished our 675th house. We got 675 in, in that period of time. And then right now in our pipeline that we're committed to do and we're under construction with most of these is another 216. So in about 18 months, we'll be close to 900. And in our planning stages, we've got another 100 or so that we're working on to try to develop. The need is unbelievable, Dallas. It's greater now than it's ever been. And I've been doing this for 24 years. And I know that's a catchphrase that maybe everybody says, but it's so true now. And with the costs going up the roof, out the roof, wherever they're going, they're going up. It's just amazing. And in people's incomes, some folks in low income spectrum are getting higher wages with what happened with COVID and all those things. But inflation is going up at the same rate. And so it's, they're still not keeping up. There's just an incredible demand. Our state housing finance agency in Columbia estimated the other day that there's a 180,000 house unit count deficit in what's needed for folks of moderate to low incomes. 180,000. That's a lot of houses. So is that the biggest? Would you say that that just the access to housing is the one of the biggest challenges that we're facing right now in terms of this group of people that need lower income affordable housing? Is that their biggest challenge? Their income can't keep up with the rising costs. And just the average cost of a house in Greenville, South Carolina is 370 something thousand dollars right now. That's the average. They're not able to keep up. So we have to come along and find ways to find uh, affordable capital that goes into the development of housing so that we don't have to pass the cost of all the dollars that we use to develop housing onto the end user. It's difficult. Uh, you know me long enough to know one of my mottos is if it was easy, anybody could do it. So it's not easy, but that's how we have to keep doing it. And the need's getting greater because the market's strong. People are willing to pay the prices. There's people in South Carolina moving here from other areas that were paying double what they're paying now for the same house. And so why wouldn't they move here? And it's just making, obviously, people that are building houses now, they're taking advantage of that market. And I don't blame them at all. But we have to find ways for the folks that work in the restaurants or at the bank teller section or any income range that's below uh, the average. We have to find ways for them to be able to find home ownership, housing, affordability, all those things through the best ways we can. Now, Homes of Hope is an entrepreneurial nonprofit. And I know that people may see a nonprofit and go, okay, I get that, you know, and you donate money and the nonprofit takes that donation and goes and does whatever it is that their organization does. But Homes of Hope is different. You got a different spin on this and you've been doing this differently for quite some time. So tell the listeners exactly like, how does that work and how does it work for Homes of Hope? Well, there's several answers to that. You know, the, the main basic one would be that 70% of our budget needs, we take care of ourselves with housing income. We're blessed to have a product that's part of our ministry that actually produces income. And so we do charge for it, obviously. We just don't charge market rates for it. But it's enough to keep us growing and building our capacity, whereas the average nonprofit that begs for all the money every year stays kind of limited to what they can do. So we've been able to scale up because uh, we've been able to be entrepreneurial. And just to give you an example, we several years back asked our donors to consider additionally being investors. So 
We have a tax credit from time to time that we can offer our donors and investors that we qualify for through the Department of Commerce here in South Carolina that recognizes us as a high capacity organization. So they let us have tax credits we can offer to a donors and investors. So we sat down with donors a few years back, maybe a decade ago, and said, we already know you like us. We already know you're used to giving us some money and not getting it back. How about, in addition to that, investing in our work? And so we started an equity fund where they can invest to get a small yield on that investment. We can give them a tax credit on top of that because we're a nonprofit that gets their yield even better. It's not market rate yield, but it's a decent yield. And it's enough because they want to make a social impact that they're satisfied with that. And a lot of our investors have been able to allow us to leverage those dollars. So if you invested a dollar with us in that program, we're going to easily raise another five or six to go along with it. Uh, So your bang for your buck is just huge. And those are things that you call it entrepreneurial. I mean, it's just doing business and we're no different than anybody else in that respect, except this. We see it as a ministry. We're a faith-based organization. We are capping our prices. So We can't just pass our cost on because we're trying to serve a certain income range. Therefore, we need more help to make those costs go down. But other than that, we can make a profit if we want to. We just can't put it in our pocket. We have to reinvest it as a nonprofit, and we're happy to do that. That's amazing. And the fact that I love the creativity that you're bringing to the offering, not only are you helping people, but you're actually opening it up for other people to partner with you and experience actual return. I mean, for me, if you're going to invest in something and you can get a return and you can be socially responsible and see a a positive social impact on your investment, like what's not to like? That's amazing. I love hearing about your creativity in that that aspect. So one time you took me on a tour and you call it your nickel tour or something like that? Yeah, you still owe me a nickel, by the way. I owe you a nickel. (laughs) It's in the mail. Checks in the mail for a nickel. No. So you took me on the nickel tour and I was surprised because you're driving me down the street in this community and you're trying to get, you're testing me and you're asking me, okay, is this house, you know, rented or is it owned and the houses in a row? And, you know, can you tell based on the exterior who has bought their house and who's rented their house? And, you know, some of that you're just expecting like, oh, if somebody's renting the house, we're not taking care of it or whatever. And you're looking for these signs that may, and I missed it every time. Like I totally you know, I probably, I'm glad I didn't bet more than a nickel because I think I'd have lost it that day. (laughs) But uh, that was really surprising to me, the impact of what you're doing in terms of building a community and the impact on the individual and then also the quality of the housing. Is there any other surprises that people, you know, just would be surprised about when it comes to either Homes of Hope or affordable housing or anything like that? I'll tie it to the story you just did with with a nickel tour that we had folks in the early days say, Don, that'll never work. You cannot put a market rate homeowner right beside a low-income renter in the same kind of house. That'll never work. That community will not succeed. And we said, you know what? We're going to try it and see. And we've been replicating that model all over the state. And the cool thing is the folks that are market rate owners or renters, buyers, whatever they are, that live amongst low-income neighbors, they come back to us until 100%. This is one of the coolest things I've ever done. I love my neighbors. Dallas, they took some green space in one of our developments that we just gave them some green space to have a little break between the houses. And they said, can we build a gazebo on it? I went, yeah, I guess so. I mean, if you use your own money, uh, what are you doing? He said, we love to celebrate neighborhood birthdays together. 30 families, half of them are market rate homeowners, half are low income renters. 
and they celebrate their birthdays each month of whoever lives in the neighborhood. I don't know about you, Dallas. My neighborhood does not celebrate my birthday. The thing you would be surprised about is that does work. People can live together, and once they understand that there's only a balance sheet difference here, but we're still the same people, and we get along, and we be good neighbors. That's the coolest thing I've seen in a while. That's totally an upside-down concept, like you were saying earlier. When people think of affordable housing, you just don't have those pictures come to mind. And I will say it did blow my mind. All right, so we've talked a lot about Homes of Hope, what you guys are doing, where you've been, you know, what you're accomplishing today. But what I really want to spend some time on, on the show today is really where you came from, because we're all about the last 10%. We're all about finishing strong. We're all about living in that last 10%, doing the work that it takes to live in that last 10%, which is a lot. You guys are living in that last 10%, but you had to go through a tremendous amount of effort to get there and stay there. And so I'd love for you to share how in the world did this start? 24 years ago, how did this all come together? We had a single a single person that had the idea for Homes of Hope and that had the wherewithal to fund it. So he said, uh, this is my idea. I want to start a nonprofit, Homes of Hope. I'll cover all the cost. Well, Dallas, you know that eggs in one basket is not the greatest plan in the world. And we didn't know that at the time or didn't care because he was willing to fund us. So a half a million dollars annual first startup budget and five employees. And he was willing to write the checks. We were willing to do the work. And we had a great time for about a year and three months. And then about a year and three months into it, he his whole industry came crashing down. He had to sell his business. He took me to lunch. He said, I can't give you any more money. And I wanted him to say, well, I can't give you as much more money. <laughs> or I'm going to have to cut back a little. But no, he said, it's over. He said, what are you going to do? And here's my faith-based part of the story. I said, well, we're going to trust God because we believe that God called this into existence. And we had been reading a book together, we meaning our staff, in our morning devotions before we went to work. And it was a book about a guy that really literally prayed for everything and it just happened. It was World War II era person in England. One of the stories in there was where he was broke. He didn't have any money. He did have a house, didn't have transportation. And he got a telegram that said, your mom's on her deathbed. And he said, I put the telegram down, I prayed, and I felt very strongly. The Lord said, you must go see her. And she was nine hour train right away. He went to his house, he packed his bag, he went to the bus station, he stood in line with no money. And about two people back from the window, somebody walked up to him and says, fellow, I don't know who you are, but God told me to give you this money. And he handed him the money, it was enough for the ticket, and he went on. So we had been talking about that story, that kind of radical faith, the kind of faith that would make you look really stupid if God didn't come through. Because you're standing in line at a bus ticket with no money. Well, I said, I think we're supposed to do that. And literally uh, gathered the staff around and we said, let's just do that. Let's trust God. Act like the money's still there. Now, here's the 10% part. We had to work hard. We had to go every church we could find. We had to start being even more entrepreneurial. We started doing things to raise money, to earn money. We didn't know what the heck we were doing. We just, we knew we wanted to help folks with housing. And we haven't even mentioned our workforce development program, but we knew we wanted to help former addict men find workforce development skills so they could re-enter the job market. That's what we knew we wanted to do. That's what we felt like God called us to do. And we started doing everything we could for about three years. We call it our wilderness period. And 
God came through. Uh, every time we were about to get the power shut off or the water shut off or we were too broke to keep going, something would happen. I had a friend, and I know I'm answering this more lengthily maybe than you want me to, but I had a friend named Eric who came to me, said, Don, I just can't believe what y'all are doing. I've never seen people operate with this kind of faith before. I want to help. I said, great. He said, I want to flip houses and split the profits with you. I said, okay. I don't have any money. He said, that's okay. I said, well, I don't really have any time to help you renovate. He said, that's okay. Uh, okay. Um, so you're going to put your own money into it. You're going to flip the house. You renovate it, flip it, and split the profits with me. He said, yeah, isn't it great? He said, Don, I've never, I've never been around anybody that exercised their faith like that, and I want to help. And Eric was probably 50% of the reason that we made it through the wilderness. Let me set this up so that everybody understands. You guys are working full-time. You've started this nonprofit. You've got it going. You're over a year in. You're settled into this role. You've got employees, a team. How many people at that time did you have that you were working with? Five employees. And then one day, 100% of your resources and capital dries up instantly, just out. And then on day two after that, you've got to totally figure out, like, how does this work from home? So, I mean, how do you even pay the team members? Like, at that point, like, I know you're going out and working, but that's starting from nothing. I said five employees. I guess counting me, it was six. So the other five employees all had spouses that worked, so they were able to sustain a little bit of their needs. My wife was a stay-at-home mom. We had $300 in the bank. That was it. We had nothing. We didn't have any equity in our house. And yet, I didn't miss a payment, didn't miss a meal. Last time you saw me, you could look at me and know I've never missed a meal. And God just came through. Now, if some of it was last minute. Some of it was really scary. That kind of faith that made it put us in the same position as the guy in the bus station. We had to, we would have looked really stupid if he hadn't come through, but he did. And what he taught us, because we were a bunch of basically middle-class people that felt a call to this ministry. And I think that God put us through that partly and maybe mostly so that we could relate to folks that we serve later on. We can say, hey, I know what it is to be desperate. I know what it feels like to not know where the next dollar is coming from. And I think that was part of our our story, our journey, our learning experience. And I think it made us better. And it certainly made us less fearful. Dallas, you know me. I'm not, I say I'm too stupid to be afraid. There is a fine line between courage and stupidity, by the way. But I, I, I'm not afraid of too much anymore because we went through that and he pulled us through. And so from there, now we have 20 employees. We have a $12 million budget instead of a half a million dollar budget and helped all these men with workforce development skills. It's it's pretty cool to have been a part of it. That is amazing. That's an amazing story. And to come through that, what you call the wilderness experience, I think that's really encouraging for entrepreneurs. Um, I think it's really encouraging for business owners, you know, students, anybody that's going through it. When, you know, whether you call it the wilderness experience, whether you call it the grind, whether it's a crucible, whatever that phase is, that's really honing and pushing and testing, you know, and just, and you just feel like, I'm sure you did, like, is this going to end? I mean, was it hard to maintain? I mean, cause you seem like it was just, you're so steadfast, but did you go through times where you were just like, am I crazy? You know, did you feel that when you were going through that wilderness? Absolutely. In fact, I, I wrote a book about it. It's called Still Desperate in the Promised Land. And it's all about what God taught us in this journey. And then once we hit the promised land in quotation marks where we were successful, 
one of the things he taught us was still be just as desperate for him then as we were in the wilderness. And, I, and there's a chapter in my book called Crying at the Window, in the window of my office when everybody would go home and I would think, Dallas, I would go like, am I just crazy? Am I just too stubborn to give up? And, you know, you have to check yourself in those moments because probably there are times when some people need to give up things. But we didn't feel like we were those people and we felt like we couldn't and shouldn't give up. But did I have doubts about it? Absolutely. And I, I cried at the window a few times saying, Lord, if this is just me, tell me so I can go do something else. But if this is you, why is it so dead, blurm, hard? <laughs> well, I'm glad you did stick with it. And that perseverance has really paid off in spades and, and really helped a lot of people. And so tell me this, as, as we go through and we talk about your experience, there was some inflection points as you grew. You felt like, okay, we're moving out. That sound means it's time to take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. If you lead an organization or a team, one of the biggest challenges you face is developing your people. Think Move Thrive is here to help you on your journey. We've developed a coaching system that integrates into your team or organization to consistently develop your employees, build trust, gain valuable feedback, and increase accountability. Leadership retreats and summits are great. We even build those custom for our clients, but they're only part of the solution because they lack consistency. Our one-on-one coaching app is the missing piece in your employee development program. We help new leaders get to know their teams. We help technical managers be more relational, and we help ensure that your relational rock stars stay organized. We developed the system for a client, and it was so successful. We created the app to help more organizations develop their people build trust, engagement, and you guessed it, performance. For more information, go to thinkmovethrive.com to learn more about the one-on-one coaching system and start developing your team today. Back to the show. What's some of the things when you look back on that initial, like you're out of the gate, you're like got a lot of excitement, you're doing a lot of good stuff, and then you run into this crisis And then it's like the real work starts and you go through this period of time, two or three years of just complete, utter, unbelievable dependence and also just really hard work to try to build this organization back from scratch. What is the point at which you felt like you were starting to get some traction? You know, really like what were the things that were going on when you were like, oh, I think I think this is going to actually be be sustainable. Yeah, there's that story's in the book, too. There was a time when there were two times, I think, that we I understood and realized that, hey, this is real and this is going to work out. But until those times, there was always doubt. And so the gap filler for me and that I would encourage whoever's listening that might be going through one of those times is persevere. Just don't give up unless you just know you're supposed to. Just don't, because I think that if what you're doing is worthwhile, then it will pay off. That's where we found ourselves. There was many times when we were so dogged determined to keep working as hard as we could work, even though we didn't see results, you know, at the times when we wanted to see them and it did pay off and things started happening. You know, in other words, I guess sometimes when you're in the wilderness, you sit around and say something needs to happen. I wish something would happen. Those aren't the times in the wilderness. The times in the wilderness is go find some dirt to work and plant some seeds and put some water on it and those times will come when things just happen, but they don't just happen because you're sitting there in the desert with your arms stretched out waiting for manna to fall. You got to 
you got to plant and water. And from the faith-based perspective, I've got a chapter in the book that talks about this too. Some plant, others water, God makes it grow. We're supposed to do what we can do. Planting and water is what we can do, but none of us can make anything grow. That takes supernatural work and only God can do that. But you know what? If you don't plant and water, God's favor just shines on dirt, right? There's nothing to grow. So you got to put the seeds in and you got to water them. And now you're not getting it to grow because you deserved it or earned it. You're just getting it to grow because only God makes it grow. So perseverance is a key, key word for us. And, you know, obviously we try to practice that today, even in the midst of some success. That's a good point. I love that idea of perseverance and control what you can control, right? You know, you can't necessarily control if something grows or not, but you can't control, you know, how many seeds you put in the dirt and how much water you put on. So I love that analogy. It gives us the responsibility, you know, that personal responsibility that we have when we're going after it, when we're getting it into the grind, into the work. It's not up to somebody else to plant the seeds. It's not up to somebody else to water. It's up to us. We got to do the work. So if you were to say, if there was some things, as you look back on your experience and going and growing this really amazing organization, the really high-functioning, high-performing team from nothing, you know, in fact, from like negative, because you had something and lost it and then had to get it back, what would you be some advice that you would give to, say, a business owner or an entrepreneur or somebody just getting started with something? They're kind of on the front side of whatever it is they're doing. It might be a career or a business. What advice would you give? You know, that's a great question. You know, usually when your guest answers starting out with, that was a great question, it means they don't have any idea how to answer it. (laughs) But but it is a good question. You know, several things come to mind. I mean, having a dogged determination is one of the things that jumped into my head. You know, you don't have to be the best leader in the world sometimes if you have vision and if you have dogged determination and if you believe in your people. Understanding your people are your greatest assets and sowing into them, teaching them, encouraging them, not getting discouraged in front of them, even though when you do, you're vulnerable and they see that, sometimes that's the best thing you could do is be vulnerable in front of your people and they can see you discouraged. But as a rule, you try not to be, persevere. And obviously I'm I'm a fan of faith, Dallas. You know, I endorse a relationship with Christ to any of your listeners. That to me was the life changer for me and whether you want to believe it or not, he is real and he does hear us and he does care, especially when he calls you to do something. And if you're living out your life purpose, which was easy for us, Dallas, we felt like we were. I mean, maybe some business people out there are listening and say, well, I'm not sure I'm living out any kind of purpose. I'm just trying to make ends meet. So that's a real thing. Finding your purpose, uh, even if you're not a faith based person. Finding a purpose, maybe that makes it easier, finding a purpose. Either way, when you can find that, I think your passion will overwhelm your obstacles. I love how you talked about believing in your people and sowing into them. You know, we had another podcast with an avalanche forecaster mountain guide, and he's talking about going up Everest. And one of the things that he said was he climbs through his team that he's guiding up the mountain. He starts at the back and he works his way up. And that's kind of the same picture that I get when you're talking about sowing in into your team and sowing into the people that you're around with, how important that is as you're growing your organization. You're not just growing the systems and processes of the organization or the business, you're growing people, you know? And I think that's one of the things that come through with what you're doing. It's really all about people, whether it's the people that you serve by the homes that you build or the communities that you're growing, or whether it's your men's development, you know, program, 
or whether that's your own team members that you're growing and developing, because I think you've done a good job of doing that in your own organization. So it's really just all about that. And, and it's not saying that systems and processes are not important and that you're not working on those and getting it right. And you guys are a lean, mean machine for sure. If you've built 600 houses, no doubt. At the same time, I just think your focus on that is a great message for somebody getting started in something. And, and also, I think it's really cool for our listeners to understand that if you're, if you're doing something worthwhile and you're going through the grind, even if it fails, you fail doing something worthwhile. You know? And I think that's something that is very encouraging because at the end of the day, a lot of times we're going to go through things and it's not going to work out the way we intend. But if we're doing something that's worthwhile, there's always going to be something. There's always going to be some fruit from that. There's always going to be something that comes out of that effort that's going to benefit us and those around us. So I think those are great things. So what encouragement now you expressed, like I can't imagine just waking up one day and going, everything in the organization has changed and my whole team has got to, you know, figure this out. And, you know, I think what's hard for me to wrap my head around is not the fact that everything changed in an instant. That I understand because things like people get laid off, companies close, the whole, all of that. It's the fact that you were just like, you just all acted like nothing happened. I mean, like, nah, I know it's not, there's no money here now, but yeah, we're going to act like it is. And we're just going to keep on moving. That to me, that is amazing. And so if someone is going through a very difficult season, you called it your wilderness experience or your wilderness season. If somebody's going through that in their life, it might be in their family, it might be in their job, it might be in their work, it could be with team members at work, school, whatever. What advice or encouragement would you give to somebody that just feels like they are just in the grind, in the wilderness experience in their life? You know, obviously, faith is my starting place in all those answers. But I think about our three founding principles that all start with the letter F and how those got us through. And so faith is obviously the first one. The second one was focus. We didn't get scattered. We didn't start looking for any way we could make money. We didn't think about, oh, we better look at this or let's look at that. We stayed focused on what we were supposed to do, what we knew we were called to do. So I don't know if that can relate to every person listening. They may not know you know, what their specific purpose or calling in life is, but we felt like we did. And so we stayed focused to it. I remember going to see a guy in Columbia, South Carolina during our wilderness named Jimmy Jones. If he's listening today, hey, Jimmy, so you're an awesome dude. And he's, he ran a rescue mission there, still does as far as I know. And, and somebody told me he lived his life on faith like that. Let's go see him and see what he says about your wilderness. I said, okay. And I went and told him all our story and, and poured my heart out to him. And he told me a lot of different things. And I, it was all a great day of you know gleaning from his wisdom. But one of the things that stuck with me the most, about an hour or two into our visit, he said, Don, let me ask you a question. How many houses do you want Homes of Hope to build every year? And so in our first year, when we were funded by our, our generous donor, we renovated 50 houses that year. And so I puffed my chest out and I said, well, we want to build 50 houses a year. And he said, all right, well, let me ask you a question. What if God only wanted you to build five? And I went, I don't know. What are you talking about? He said, well, let me tell you what would happen. He said, you would build your 50 houses. And when the bill came due, he would hand you the money for five. God would hand you the money for five. And he'd hand the bill for 45. So he said, do exactly what God called you to do and he'll always pay for it. 
Now, he'll still love you on those other 45 houses. He'll still bless you and help you. But if you just do what he called you to do, he'll always pay for it. I promise you, Dallas, that has been true since the day he said that. We've stayed focused on what he called us to do. And then the, the third F is favor. We recognize plant water, plant water, plant water. Do what you do. Work as hard as you can. Do it every day. And believe God will shine favor down on it. And if it is his purpose, then maybe he will. I love that, man. If that's not great advice for the wilderness, plant water, plant water. I love it. If you're in a season of that, I think that's super encouraging because really that's what it is. It's a commitment to all those things. But that level of focus that you had just fuels that determination, just that singular, singular focus. And then just the drive to just do what you can control, you know, control what you can control, plant water, plant water, plant water. Man, that's awesome. So, all right, we're going to move to the end. So First of all, I want to try to do something. we got a little new segment we're going to do tonight, Two Truths and a Lie. Don, you're the first one that gets to experience this wonderful new segment at the end of the show here. I'm going to read, this is the real estate version. You're in development. So uh, we, get to do, uh, we get to do this from a real estate perspective since you're the, you've got all this expertise. So we're going to do Truths and a Lie. But while I'm teeing this up, I want you to think if there's anybody in your mind that you would like to have as a guest here, you hear them on the last 10%. We always like to ask guests on the last 10% if there's somebody that they would like to hear be a guest on. It could be anybody. It could be somebody that's well-known celebrity. It could be a, just somebody that you know in your network. It could be just somebody that you think would be interesting to have on the show that our listeners would enjoy. So while you're thinking about that, we're going to play uh, Two Truths and a Lie. So I'm going to read you three statements and three bits of trivia. Two are actually factual and true. And the other one is obviously something about it is not right. So here we go. All right. So located in Wales is the smallest house in Great Britain. It actually has a name. It's called the Quay House. It measures 72 inches across, 122 inches high, and 120 inches deep. Okay. It's been there for hundreds of years and has been home to numerous families. That is trivia number one, okay? Number two is that San Francisco, the Bay Area, is actually built on top of many, many ships, and that actually some of the subway system runs through, the T-trains run through the hull of one of these ships that were just dug through to get these subways in place. So that's the second, that's number two. And then number three, we're gonna do a little bit of real estate pricing here. So we're gonna say the most expensive house ever sold in the United States, just sold this past month, was called The One. It was on a hilltop near LA, near Los Angeles. Mega mansion sold for $295 million. So. Of those three, two truths and a lie, which one seems a little bit fishier, a little bit off? Yeah, you made that San Francisco thing up. That can't be true. I'm, there's no way. <laughs> All right. Well, you got it right. You've got it right. I couldn't fool him. He's a man of real estate and development. So uh, congratulations. You're 100% accurate. Uh, the, the, uh, the house, the one house that actually did not sell for 295. It was listed for 295, but it sold only for a mere $141 million. So poor folks, they didn't get their 295 asking price. So the real estate, that's a heck of a commission loss on that sale. Anyway, 
All right. Well, hey, thanks for uh, again for being on the show. Hey, anybody that you'd like to see on the show? Any thoughts on that? Sure. I'd love to see Leighton Covage come on that show. We'll talk about that. See if we can't get Leighton as a guest on the old show. That'd be great. That'd be great. So how do people connect with you and Homes of Hope? What's some relevant links? Where can they find you and connect with you or connect with Homes of Hope? And where can they find your book? Shameless plug time. I love it. Homesofhope.org is our website. That's the easiest way to find out more about us. And certainly you can uh, find me on there and my email and phone number and all that. Love for you to check that out. There's some videos in there, some stories of some of the folks we've helped. It's really cool. Good website. And then on Amazon, you can just Google Don Oglesby or you can Google uh, Still Desperate in the Promised Land. Either one of those things should pull my book up. I'm working on, you'll love this. You always encourage me to do things like this. I'm working on a website that will promote the book, but at the same time promote me for speaking opportunities in either churches or Christian businesses or secular businesses that may just want to really try to tap into some of our story and how it connects with theirs. And I would love to share it with anybody and everybody. And that's coming in the next couple of months. So. But right now, just Homes of Hope or Amazon, you can find the book or check us out on the website. Man, Don, this has been such a pleasure today. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Uh, Thank you for sharing your story, your experience. And thank you for all the work you do for all the communities that Homes of Hope um, have been building through the years. And thank you for your sacrifice, all that you've done for people. And just uh, the selfless giving that you and your team do on a daily basis. We just appreciate you being on the last 10%. Thanks for sharing some incredible advice to our listeners during the episode and some mindsets that you've had to hone and, and develop. And just I just think it's been great. So it's been a fantastic time. Wish you the best. And, and if you want to connect, please connect with him, homeswithhope.org. And Don Oglesby on Amazon. Buy his book. The story is incredible. I've read it myself. It is amazing. You got like 10% of what's in the book on the podcast today. There are so many, there's so many more crazy details of things that Don had to go through over the years that this thing was being just grown. And it's just a great story. So please buy that and support Homes of Hope. So thanks again, Don. We'll see you again soon. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us today on The Last 10%. We hope you found today's content engaging and encouraging. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to hear the latest episodes. And help us out by rating and reviewing us so others will join our community. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. This podcast can be found globally in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon. Subscribe today. Plus, visit our website, join our email list, and discover resources and info for your business and team at thinkmovethrive.com. Thanks again for listening to The Last 10%.